0: Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. The UN General Assembly kicks into high gear this week as world leaders flock to New York for the annual UN Summit. There are many storylines for international affairs nerds to follow, and on the line with me to break them all down is Richard Gowan, a fellow with the European Council on Foreign Relations. Richard and I offer a preview of the big stories, high drama, and possible moments of diplomatic intrigue that are sure to be present at one of the most important weeks of the year for global affairs. But before we kick off, I have a special announcement, actually, an invitation. I will be hosting a live taping of Global Dispatches with Undersecretary of State Sarah Sewell, and you are cordially invited to attend, and I hope you do. She is the highest-ranking State Department official dealing with human rights, terrorism, refugees, and other issues related to civilian security, rights, and democracy, and it should be a fantastic conversation that will include some audience participation. The event is organized in conjunction with the group Young Professionals in Foreign Policy, and it's being held in New York on Wednesday, September 21st at 7 p.m. at the SLC Conference Center, which is at 15 West 39th Street, which is near Bryant Park. So for those of you in the New York area, please come by. And if you are planning to attend, you can RSVP at ypfp.org. And I'll also post a link on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And one last thing before we start. We are still in fundraising mode this month of September. Just a few weeks left, and frankly, I I need more support. If you have thought about making a gift, making a contribution, uh, just pull the trigger. I need it. Um, I want to be able to keep consistently putting out this kind of content, this kind of high-quality content, twice a week, every week, and I need your support to do it. Think of it. There is no podcast out there like this that covers these issues in the way that I cover them, and I need your help to keep doing it. So please go to globaldispatchespodcast.com or click the link in the description field of this podcast episode if you're listening on iTunes. Thank you so much. And now here is Richard Gowan, and it's a fun conversation about UNGA. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season four launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: I think there are three really interesting storylines. The first is whether the General Assembly can make any real progress in getting assistance to refugees and the refugee crisis is the, the top substantive uh, point of discussion for leaders uh, meeting in New York. But behind the scenes, there are two more storylines that are interesting. One is about goodbyes. Uh, Ban Ki-moon is saying goodbye after 10 years as Secretary General, and President Obama is giving his farewell address to the General Assembly. So there's going to be a sense of leaders' looking at their legacies and reviewing how the world has transformed over a decade. And then in addition to that, there is the question of who will replace Ban Ki-moon. And that third storyline is for UN geeks like you and me, perhaps the most interesting, because the race to be the next Secretary General uh, has become extremely contentious. Mm -hmm. uh, And we have a couple of very strong candidates butting heads very, very hard right now. And we won't see the conclusion of that. During the General Assembly, but it's going to be a major talking point.
0: So let's geek it out a, a little bit and talk about that last uh, that that last bit—the race to replace Ban Ki Moon, whose term expires at the end of the year. As you said at the outset, this is his final uh, UNGA, uh, which he's presiding as Secretary General. And in the months leading up to this moment, there have been a series—I believe at this point—four straw polls. Uh, conducted by the uh, Security Council to decide who should replace him. Uh, These straw polls have not been uh, definitive or conclusive, although a few leaders have emerged. Uh, What kind of behind-the-scenes diplomating do you see taking place in regards to choosing the successor to Ban Ki-moon?
1: Well, it's worth saying that there are currently, I think, nine candidates still running, Mm -hmm. but... Uh, one candidate in the race has stood out throughout the process. And that is the former Portuguese Prime Minister, António
0: Guterres, who's also the former head of the UN Refugee Agency.
1: Exactly, and and comes from UNHCR with a a very strong uh, reputation as both a a manager and an operational uh, thinker. Now, Guterres has led uh, by differing degrees, but clear degrees in every single one of the four straw polls to date. Mm-hmm. And he enjoys widespread support not only in uh, the Security Council, but actually more generally out amongst the mm-hmm. uh, the broader UN membership.
0: And, and uh, I should say probably in the NGO community as well. He is uh, at least compared to Ban Ki moon, not even the least compared to, but he is, he's, he's an incredible communicator, uh, which is a, a skill set that Ban Ki moon, uh, lacked. Um, he is sort of the polar opposite of, of sort of the public image of a secretary general when it comes to an ability and a facility, uh, to communicate effectively, I'd say.
1: Yep. And diplomats like that, especially as a contrast to ban, NGOs like it and UN officials like it. So I think there's going to be a lot of, uh, talk. Some of it public, much of it private around the General Assembly about the need to seal the deal and let Guterres, uh, be the next Secretary General. And I'm sure that a lot of, uh, heads of, heads of state will be, um, focusing on this issue. Now, listeners may wonder why someone who's won four straight polls, uh, could still be defeated. And the answer is Russia and, the Russians have been very, very opaque about whether they would accept Guterres uh, as the UN chief. He might be too activist for their taste. He may also uh, be unacceptable to them as a, a former NATO uh, head of government. Uh, so you will, I suspect, see quite a lot of lobbying in uh, in Guterres' favour, and people will be targeting... Uh, the Russian delegation Mm -hmm. uh, to to try and win them over. Uh, But it won't be definitive because uh, unlike last year, President Putin is not attending the General Assembly and it's widely understood that Putin will make the final decision on this issue in, in Moscow.
0: Uh, and the next inflection point is a, a straw poll on the 26th and then another straw poll in early October. And that October straw poll is expected to include what are called color-coded ballots to distinguish the preferences of the veto-holding permanent five members from uh, the non-veto-holding members in, in that straw poll. So, oh. Okay. So, so story one is uh, next secretary general. Um, you mentioned earlier a, a focus on refugees and migrants. Uh, we're speaking just after Ban Ki moon, um, concluded his annual, his final annual unga preview press conference. And that is, um, uh, and, and refugees and migrants were his top priority and, Uh, I should say that by the time that this episode is published, there will have been another uh, episode of the podcast focused specifically on the two summits uh, that are key inflection points in the international uh, community's approach to the global refugee and migration crisis. One is which which is a, a summit that's organized by the UN itself. Uh, the other is a summit that is organized by Ban Ki Moon, taking place. Pardon me, by President Obama, taking place at uh, the United Nations. Uh, what are, are you looking? Um, to what are you watching uh, to happen around those two summits to be honest i hope
1: i'm wrong but i expect more hot air than real results from all this discussion of of the refugee crisis uh, the the first of the two summits you mentioned being organized by the un is likely to result in little more than a a non-binding communique that we've already seen and is It's full of good intentions, but very, very few concrete details. Um, I'm less sure about what will come out of the event hosted by President Obama. The Americans are very keen to get everyone who participates in that that event to make firm pledges of aid uh, to refugees. Uh, We are hearing that there may be some interesting interventions by the World Bank, for example, which may offer financial assistance to countries. Um, countries welcoming refugees, but overall there's a sense around the UN building that migration and refugee issues are so domestically complicated and so painful in, in all countries, really, uh, that it is, it is very hard to make huge progress uh, even, even at the General Assembly, despite the, uh, the level of attention being paid to this.
0: Yeah, the, the politics of this domestically don't translate well to grand and sweeping declarations at the United Nations because these declarations at the end of the day have to be a consensus document that, uh, every country in the world is, is able to sign on to. And so many countries have so many caveats that they want to insert into these documents that it ends up getting watered down or around a, a politically, um, Controversial uh, question uh, relating to migrants and, and refugees, um, but I, I did want to talk about this this uh, Obama's last uh, UN summit because this refugees summit that he is holding that is he, that that he is uh, organizing is sort of um, a great and, and sort of a perfect, I think, manifestation of how uh, President Obama has over the last eight years use these United Nations summit to advance, uh, discrete agendas. And so this, um, Obama summit is a a pay to play summit. You mentioned earlier the World Bank may make some big announcement, uh, that, um, in order to make that big announcement, they need to be invited to the, uh, pardon me, in order to be invited to the conference to give it being, being given a speaking role, uh next to seated next to the u s president uh they need to be prepared to make those kinds of commitments and kind of uh, of of announcements and so this is uh i think a good example of the way in which uh the Obama administration has been able to kind of move the needle on some of these discrete issues uh by holding these kind of side events at the u n in the years past they 've had one on terrorism and on shoring up u n peacekeeping and on um non-proliferation uh, and so this is i i think a good example of how uh the u.s government as the host country and the most powerful country in the world can can sort of advance discrete agendas at the united nations
1: i think that's all true and um as you say the focus last year was on shoring up uh un peace operations and in 2015 uh dozens of leaders came uh came together with President Obama and pledged troops and police and other assets uh, to Blue Helmet missions. Uh, There was a follow-up conference to that in London uh, on September the 8th. Uh, That wasn't at the level of heads of government. It was at the level of defence ministers. But actually, that was quite a positive event. Uh, The the overall readout is, is that many of the countries that have promised extra forces to the UN uh, have delivered. Others are in the process of getting them ready. Uh, And there is some real momentum now to to strengthen UN peacekeeping. And that that all emerges from uh, an event that Vice President Biden hosted in in 2014, and then most significantly, uh, the event hosted by Obama last year. So I don't think that I don't think that President Obama has necessarily necessarily fulfilled all the hopes that UN fans placed in him. Right, he was going to save the world back in
0: 2008.
1: E- exactly, but he um, he's, he takes a more pragmatic approach to to problem solving uh, around issues like peacekeeping at the UN, and it it does deliver results. Now they're quite technical results. They they are overshadowed by uh, issues such as the Syrian crisis, which I think has done. Uh, America's credibility in the UN um, serious damage. But we should, we should note that, step by step, uh, this administration has worked to strengthen the UN, and the President has also been very consistent uh, in supporting UN, UN efforts to deal with climate change and uh, promote development, and we've seen real progress there uh, during the last couple of years of his term so yeah, i mean it
0: it is worth i think dwelling on the fact that yeah. the america's stock coming into uh 2008 at the end of the bush administration was exceedingly low at the united nations uh and that there was this great deal of of hope that the obama administration would really turn things around and provide the kind of of leadership that helps the u.n run effectively i think Kofi Annan has has this good quote that you know when America leads and the UN follows there's really like no global problem that can go unsolved um, and so there was this this really I think great expectation some of it's been fulfilled but as you said earlier um, you know there has been uh, also some like hard realities that these expectations have run hard uh, against but um, when you look at it I think historically perhaps, the Obama administration's most lasting contribution to the UN system was basically restoring confidence and, and faith in American leadership at the UN.
1: I think that is 75% true. I mean, as, as I say, I think that uh, the president followed very consistent strategies on, on climate change uh, as a priority, development as a somewhat lower priority but nonetheless um, as a significant issue for his administration and you know the difference between today and and 10 years ago when John Bolton was the US ambassador to the UN and was doing his best to wreck the organization from within is is immense Uh, and Obama deserves credit for that I think though that the Administration has been profoundly frustrated by uh the difficulties of making any progress on Syria and the security council mm-hmm. um, it's also been very frustrated by how difficult it is to uh, really get u n peacekeeping forces to step up and um, protect civilians with the use of force in places like south sudan and so although we have seen some some progress on uh, on the peacekeeping reform front, as I say, uh, I think that Obama will leave office feeling very mixed, uh, I think very mixed emotions about the uh, the UN's performance as a security organization during his term. And I would expect him to emphasize that in his farewell speech uh, to the General Assembly. I think that in past years, we've seen Obama give pretty tough messages uh, to other nations at the general assembly. He's thwacked Russia, um, pretty harshly for a couple of years now over Syria and Ukraine. And I imagine that we will see him really preaching to other leaders, uh, this year about the need to take multilateralism more seriously, uh, because he has been so disappointed, um, uh, so many times, uh, By the UN's performance.
0: See, I actually expect his his speech to be something of a a victory lap. Um, I I don't expect him to gloss over the difficulties that you just described, but I have to imagine uh, that he will use this speech to sort of shore up his his global legacy, particularly in regards to climate change and sustainable uh, development, um, among other things.
1: I I think there will be a lot of uh, positive discussion. Uh, a lot of positive phrases from the President about those issues, and I'm sure we will return to some of his other greatest hits, like the Iran deal, which is one case where uh the Security Council actually has worked roughly as the u s would like but I do think there will be a um I, I do think there will be a note of warning uh running through his speech as well, and uh, we've also heard the president in, in recent weeks talk more and more bluntly about the threat of climate change and I would imagine that's going to be another area where he will will warn other leaders to to live up to their commitments um in in the years ahead once once he 's gone
0: and, and so, on climate change, one of the highlights of of this uh, week uh, will be a ratification ceremony uh, i believe on september twenty first in which uh, governments are expected to—and I love this term—deposit their instruments of ratification uh, of the Paris Climate uh, Agreement. Um, and uh, this is, is I, I said, one of, of the highlights of the uh, you know environmental community and and more broadly like you know humanity is is looking forward to um just so so listeners are aware you know the, the Paris agreement was agreed upon uh, last December there was a big signing ceremony at the united nations uh, a few months later uh and since that signing ceremony several countries have ratified the agreement uh most notably the united states and china uh, ratified it in a joint ceremony at the asean uh, conference uh, earlier this month uh, and uh, earlier this week, uh, we're recording this on Wednesday the 14th, um, Brazil uh, said that it intended to ratify the, the Paris Agreement, which is a, a big boon. And for the Paris Agreement to actually formally enter into force, something like 55 countries representing 55% of global emissions need to ratify it. And so it's not expected that that threshold will necessarily be met at this ratification ceremony uh, on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly next week, uh, but uh, it will likely provide some some pretty important momentum towards the entry into force of the Paris Agreement before the end of the year, which is most people's hopes, I'd say.
1: I think so. I think there's a, a real push to... Uh, get this process completed not merely before the end of the year, but if possible, before the U S elections, because if, uh, president Trump were to win the elections, you might suddenly see, uh, a lot of countries start to question whether they should bother to ratify this thing. Um, and I think Ban Ki-moon and others have really been, been pushing, uh, states to speed up the ratification process. It will be a, uh, a good news moment for the UN, and I think it is uh, one that is worth celebrating. Uh, a year ago, um, at the time of the 2015 um, General Assembly, we, we still weren't sure whether Paris was going to be a triumph or a disaster. The fact that largely thanks to French leadership um, and also U.S. and Chinese leadership, the, the Paris climate discussions in December 2015 was a success, was a, an immense shot in the arm. For, for all believers in, in multilateral cooperation. And so it is right and proper that in this, in this General Assembly session, which is the, the farewell tour for, for both Ban, Ban Ki-moon and, and Obama, um, both people who've invested a lot in climate change diplomacy, uh, we should be recognizing the, the fact that the, the diplomacy is working.
0: Um, one other issue that we haven't really delved too deeply into uh, is is Syria, uh, which I know will be a topic of discussion at at the UN General Assembly, um, and and sort of there. This is somewhat of of a. Uh, optimistic is is not the right word, but I would say an important inflection point in the trajectory of the Syrian conflict. Because as we are speaking, and this could change uh, at at any moment, uh, we are on the second day of a ceasefire that largely seems to be holding. However, uh, aid that is scheduled to be delivered to the city of Aleppo is currently stuck at the Turkish border. Um, this is I think just the latest manifestation of international um. The, the, this, the fitting, uh, way or the, the fleeting way in which the UN and the international community has been addressing the, the Syria crisis. Uh, do you expect at, uh, you know, in any bilateral meetings or in any sort of official forum at the UN during, uh, the UN summit there to be, like, how, how do you expect the Syria crisis to manifest itself in, in conversations in New York next week?
1: I think the, that- I think I'm right in saying that there's going to be a security council discussion of Syria in parallel with the general assembly and that I imagine will give its imprimatur and try and, uh, give more credibility to the current ceasefire. Um, if it is still holding a week from now, um, the, the reality is that although the UN, uh, is out on the front lines trying to deliver aid in Syria. And although the UN technically provides the framework for um, mediation efforts over Syria, uh, the real political work is now almost entirely being done bilaterally between uh, the US and Russia, um, much to the chagrin um, of of many Arab uh, powers. And so whatever is said in New York is, is really only... Um, giving some legitimacy to uh, to whatever Secretary of State John Kerry and uh, Foreign Minister Sergey Lavrov have managed to put together so far. I think that we are sadly likely to see a cycle with this ceasefire in Syria, very similar to past cases where a A period of relative calm um, will be followed by a gradual return to violence and possibly even a worsening of violence. There is not very much that the Security Council uh, can do about that given its current internal political divisions.
0: Um, And finally, you mentioned, uh, and and we've talked about this before, that this being Ban Ki-moon's final uh, farewell UNGA. Mm I guess how um, do you expect him to sort of carry himself in in this final unga? In terms of, um, in what ways is he going to try to um, express what his legacy ought to be or or should be throughout the the week?
1: Well, I think we've touched on a lot of the um, uh, the themes that Ban is going to to raise. Already, he he will talk about climate change, and I think he's justified in doing so because. Mm-hmm uh as as you know um i am a inveterate critic of of ban ki moon um i think he 's been a, a weak leader of the u n in in many ways. but I would say that one area where i feel he 's been dogged uh and consistent throughout his time in office has been in um pushing for diplomatic Progress on climate change. Uh, he came into office emphasizing climate change, even though ten years ago you still had a Republican administration in the U.S. that was profoundly skeptical over climate diplomacy. Uh, then, after 2009 and the failure of the Copenhagen uh, climate summit, Ban was one of the first leaders to get out on the road, arguing that uh, the U.N. needed to pick itself up and keep going on on climate change diplomacy. And so, although the key actors in in Paris were really the the Chinese, the the US, and and the French, as as I've already said. Ban deserves personal credit for fighting the good fight on climate change. Mm-hmm. So I think that. And for all my, my criticisms of him, I hope I hope he will get a big round of applause for talking about that.
0: And and I should say that one um, way in which uh, he was able to do that is is wielding a, a power of the secretary general's office that I don't think gets enough attention, um, and that is is the ability to you know convene and and hold meetings and and call for meetings. Um, you know, the secretary general is not a position with a whole lot of power, but, uh, you know, a decent amount of prestige. Uh, And I think Bond has been effectively able to wield that prestige to call for meetings. Uh, at the United Nations, in which you know celebrities and heads of state and foreign ministers uh, come to coalesce around climate issues, and that um, has in the years between the big cop meetings helped to i think move the needle uh, in an important direction towards the the final Paris outcome document
1: yeah, and I think I mean that is where ban's skills lie uh, he He is a process diplomat um and this is actually a source of of strength when it comes to a grinding grinding uh negotiation uh system such as that that we have around around climate change uh bans weakness is um firstly as as you've already said he is not
0: um a great communicator he's not a charismatic guy in, in no and in he, he
1: i mean he has he is very blunt about that himself i mean he 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 says that in public um Even more seriously than that, though, I don't think he is a – I don't think that he's someone who thinks very creatively or flexibly about crisis management. I think he's good with process diplomacy, even if he's not thrilling. But I think when it comes to uh, the sort of technicalities of UN peacekeeping or the technicalities Mm -hmm. of humanitarian operations or the the sort of massively sensitive questions of how you do high-level diplomacy with people like Lavrov, He outsources that. He's he's at a loss. He
0: he outsources that to his deputy secretary general, who's really skilled diplomat, Jan Eliasson, and and also um, diplomats like Stefan de Mistura, who are like the special envoys, who, and and, uh, Mistura is a special envoy who uh, is is sort of helping to negotiate this current serious ceasefire. And so, yeah, I I think at least he probably recognizes that he's not good at that and, and delegates those kind of jobs
1: he i mean he does he does delegate and um he has some some very good advisors but I, I do think um you know having watched ban closely at the un for 10 years his his lack of feel for crisis management um has been a uh, a real weight on the organization and a notable
0: contrast with his predecessor yes. Kofi Annan and who Arthur. was who was a skilled diplomat and a skilled crisis conflict mediator
1: yeah and and indeed um ban uh recognize that by inviting uh, Kofi to be his first mediator in exactly. in Syria. Um I mean I would say that you know and Ban Ban is not good at handling these issues directly what he tends to do is sort of um play the moral uh schoolmaster yeah. and we've seen a bit of that in his warm-up statements before the general assembly he's been talking about how disappointed he is with with world leaders. Um So I I think that he will balance a a rather triumphant uh, statement about climate change with um, some harsh moral uh, words about crisis diplomacy um, and and Syria in particular. Um, Sadly, because that's not an area where he has much leverage, I I think his words will – uh, will largely go ignored.
0: Uh, I'd add one final feather in, in the cap uh, for Ban Ki-moon's legacy at the United Nations, which is helping to mainstream uh, LGBT rights within to the sort of broader human rights framework of the United Nations. You know, before he he came along, LGBT rights were generally um, seen in sort of like the realm of of health and, and the fight against AIDS. They were sort of like, you know, it was really sort of, the, the health organizations that were seeking to reduce stigma around AIDS and, and around LGBT issues. But Ban Ki-moon has, has helped to integrate um, gay rights into the larger human rights framework of of the United Nations through various uh, initiatives and probably deserves some good credit there.
1: Yes, I, I absolutely agree. I think that is one area that um, he he is said to feel very personally uh, strongly about and it's an area where he um uh he has made quiet progress he's not um uh, he's not been able to avoid criticism from some countries mainly developing countries which uh continue to follow uh, pretty homophobic policies but um he's he's absorbed that criticism and and he's he's plowed on regardless so uh you know it, it, it's interesting i think that um i i think that there's a there's a degree of uh of warmth suddenly around the system towards ban um certainly since the paris conference i've noticed noted that diplomats are uh i think are kinder to him uh, or kinder about him in in private than than they were in the past. They do see that the climate summit um his uh his contribution to the development of the sustainable development goals and other factors do do lie in his favour. I mean I, I sadly am still in the camp that feels that his weaknesses out have outweighed his strengths. Um but you know maybe this is a this is a time to be uh to be generous and, and recognise that um especially in his second term uh it has not been all bad at the un by any means
0: um okay so actually final question um in years past there have been what i call goofy sideshows around the united nations general assembly generally when um bombastic foreign leaders uh give kind of you know let's say highly entertaining but um politically motivated uh rants uh from the general assembly podium what uh, it seems to me that this year that that's sort of muted um are, are you expecting any any kind of goofy sideshows any other kind of bizarre or fun storylines that you're following
1: no i mean the you know the great performers of of the general assembly have have gone, I mean sadly, or perhaps not so sadly, there's no Gaddafi to entertain us there's no chavez um you know there historically there have been other leaders like Castro and Arafat who uh who did a great job of um <laughs> of bringing the house down in in the general assembly, but these days uh there are fewer um uh, Fewer such Fewer um, entertainers. I would say, yeah. yeah, but actually, what I would, um, uh, what I would watch for in terms of secondary storylines um, are two European leaders. Um, uh, Theresa May, the post-referendum British Prime Minister, will be speaking uh, just towards the end of the first day of the General Assembly. Um, I think she's the penultimate speaker on tuesday the 20th and this is a big opportunity for may to try and explain to uh a still pretty perplexed international community how um britain is going to remain an international power uh despite leaving the european union so what she says um should be uh should be worth listening to um since the brexit vote in late june uh british diplomats in new york have been working extremely hard uh, to signal that they are still in the multilateral game. They've done a good job of it. But May is coming to uh, to project that message too. Um, another European leader, uh, who's actually speaking very early... Uh, I, I'm going
0: I'm to guess you're going to say the Hungarian prime minister.
1: No. Ah, ah, um, I it, thought I could read your mind here. Okay. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's President Hollande from France. Ah, okay. Because we should remember that this is... Um, uh, this is also potentially Hollande's valedictory moment um at the general assembly uh we have um uh elections looming in france and um Hollande's, uh own popularity is 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 dire at home he's and always been
0: so, more popular at the un than in france as far as i can tell
1: yeah and, and this this is a big um uh a big moment for him because it he'll be there on the world stage and he will receive a huge amount of applause quite rightly for um France's role in the climate change deal so you know Hollande will really be there trying to show his domestic audience that um he uh he is a big beast in the UN system and and he is he's actually uh strangely he does have um uh a uh, an extra degree of charisma in new york that he he doesn't seem to have um when he's dealing with the domestic audience so watch watch holand because he he is going to be in campaign mode so watch holand watch may um one more person um who uh i think may well bring the house down is um currently slated to be the final speaker on um, uh, on Monday, and that is Prime Minister Trudeau from canada nice. um, the Everyone loves him swoon the, the darling of the international system and um i 'm sure he 's going to come and uh give a, a rousing speech um, about uh, uh about how he is brought Canada back into the UN fold. He's, yeah. he's sending Canadian troops on peacekeeping missions. And so- he, And as, he as opened- I say, it's
0: worth noting that Montreal is host uh, on Saturday the 17th to the replenishment of the Global Fund to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. Uh, And Canada has significantly increased the amount of money that it is uh, contributing to that cause, and so that's you know that that I think is something legitimate to which he can point uh, for uh, to to Canada sort of re-entering the world stage and um, re-capturing the liberal internationalist leadership role that it historically has enjoyed.
1: Yeah. Um. So. Uh. So in you know in a in a period when some some long time. leaders within the U.N. are saying farewell, um, Trudeau is, is here to say, uh, say hello and assert his, um, his, his status on, on the U.N. stage. I mean, admittedly, a lot of people will be thinking of those photos that came out over the summer of him with no shirt on um, on the beaches <laughs> of, of Canada, but uh, he will have a very serious message to sell as well. Nothing wrong
0: with that. Okay, well, Richard, thank you so much. And how can people follow uh, you throughout the week on Twitter? Uh yeah, I
1: will be um I'll be writing about the uh the General Assembly for World Politics Review where I have a um a weekly column uh and I will be tweeting at Richard Gowan One um uh right. well, thank through the first you. couple of days. Well, I should say that service, um yeah. while while I think this is all great fun, um I I I think that the General Assembly is, is, is entertaining for one day enjoyable for two days and i'm um, just excruciating after about three days so uh
0: the tweets may fall off towards the end of the week as always okay well richard thank you so much for your time and as always this is great you're you're like a record holder in terms of repeat guests on on the show so i appreciate it
1: um i i feel uh i feel honored. feel honored you i feel i feel, feel honored. Honored. Just, i feel
0: am... just just soaking in
1: you, oh you just can't get
0: rid of me <laughs> all right okay all Take right, care. well i'll see you in New York. See you, in New York. All right. all right. Thank you all for listening, and a great unga to you all. And again, please do come to the live taping if you are in New York on Wednesday at 7 p.m. Come, come see me. Come visit us. I'd Love to meet you, uh, and I'd love to have you be able to pose a question to Undersecretary of State Sarah Sewell. So, so come on out. It should be fun. All right. Hope to see you there. Bye.